So this evening we're going to explore some of the questions that you've uh, helpfully provided. And uh, we just had a, a look through some of the questions and there's a wonderful variety. So thank you for so many different uh, kinds of questions from the practical to the philosophical and uh, everything in between. Um, and uh, so we will see how many of these we explore. Um, it may be that we don't uh, get through all of them, so please um, bear with us if that's the case and we don't get to your particular question. Um, yeah, and we also said perhaps it, there may be at times questions and responses rather than questions and answers, so we'll see how we go with that. So shall I have a go with that? Yeah. First one. <laughs> I personally like something of the element of randomness here. I rather like that. So let's have a go. He says, looking for one carefully. Uh, yeah. Um, so this one says, is this just one of many ways to live a more true and real life? Hmm. I guess there's a, a sense here of the, the wonderful uh, variety of different ways of life, the wonderful variety of uh, teachings that are on offer, the wonderful uh, kind of diversity of things that we can explore. And it would certainly seem to me to be really closing something down to sort of say, you know, it's just like this, so it's got to be exactly like this way and uh, to kind of dismiss uh, other things and other approaches. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would certainly say a sense of uh, creativity, a sense of meaning, living with love, compassion, wisdom can be manifested in all kinds of ways. And they don't all look like they're sitting, walking, sitting, walking, as if people who do this particular practice have a kind of monopoly on those qualities by any means. Um, but also a sense that there is something, uh, also really something very universal about what we're practicing here, which is, yeah, essentially you can think, well, we, you know, we're practicing insight meditation, we're practicing in the Buddhist tradition, or we're, you know, practicing these particular methods, but something, something kind of deeper than that, really, uh, when those things can be forms in which these things are expressed, but I mean, for me, there are certain things that I kind of come back to, and it may sound really basic in a way, but really fundamental. That sense of living with kindness, you know, is a sense of something really. Yeah, it doesn't just seem like an opinion, you know. Oh, you know, that's just your opinion. It's nice to, <laughs> to live with kindness, or you know, to to live with wisdom, to look deeply into suffering and the end of suffering. There's something very profound there and that kind of human uh, exploration of those questions that takes so many forms. Uh, yeah. hmm. So I don't know if you wanted to add to that uh, one. I mean, what comes to my mind, um, just also listening to what Sheikh said, so maybe just seeing, just then seeing it as a way, as a particular way, sometime it can be more helpful to say it's a directionality, it's an intentionality. It's an intentionality towards understanding and developing beautiful um, qualities like, like kindness, love, compassion. And this is definitely not the, the only, you know, the only tradition, if we see this as a way where this is actually emphasized and important. So it's definitely, I don't think, helpful to define define our exploration around a particular 
you know, around a particular dogma or around a particular, you know, getting getting um, contracted around it. And I don't know if this was meant with the question in many ways. So it's more of a direction than a way. Um, do you think that if we lived our lives in more meaning in a more meaningful way, i.e., not as consumers cherishing the important things in life, with different social, political, economic priorities, with our eyes and art hearts more open, so we experienced life more fully, connected and open, etc., that we wouldn't need to spend intensive period like this. Can you read this? Sorry. <laughs> reminding ourselves. Yeah. Reminding ourselves and learning what should be a part of life. Pro but end. So I certainly find, you know, when when we look when we look at the reality of our world, when we look at the reality of what is going on, you know, the immense, um, like the reality of immense injustice, you know, of immense poverty, of immense disempowerment, of immense destruction of the very fabric of life. You know, what arises for me is, yes, it would be really nice if we could actually figure out to do this better, but somehow we don't. Up to now, we haven't managed as a species to actually really turn it around and look deeply what brought about the state we are finding ourselves in. So where to start? So I think one way to actually really um, connecting with the truth of our predicament, with the truth of our reality on an individual level and on a more, on a more wider level, on a, on a yeah, more wider level, I don't need to expand it here, actually one way to actually be able to do this is to come, stop and look more deeply with hopefully the outcome that we see here in our own being, the very reasons, the the, the root causes for the state we are finding ourselves in. And and, 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 and the Buddha describes them again quite distinct, you know, he said all all suffering is based on hatred, aversion, creed, and delusion. And as long as these things are operating in ourselves, we will create certain conditions which will bring forth suffering. So it's somehow I'm approaching it from the other way around. It's like actually this, the, 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 the world which is described here, you know, living difference, social, political, and economic priorities with our hearts and minds more open. First we have to open our hearts. First we open, have to open our minds. First we have to actually see clearly what we are doing. And then, you know, we really have to question ourselves in a very kind, honest, but deeply sincere way. way. What are our priorities? What do we deeply care for? What do we want to bring forth in our life? And it may or may not (coughs) actually bring about a change in how we live our life. So it's more the other way around, you know, that we actually can use use times like this on retreat to clarify, to clarify what we care for, to clarify our priorities, to align ourselves with our heart's desire, with our deepest 
but heart's desire in the sense of the deepest yearnings of our heart for something else to happen. And then somehow in my own practice, what I discover more and more is that actually the more in my very, very humble ways, you know, I'm, I'm trying again to go in this direction. It's not that I want to be less on retreat or want to be less intensive practice, you know. It just becomes more and more like a sense to do it, yes, for deeper understanding, really open-minded, uh, not open-minded, open-ended inquiry. But on one level, at least for me, it's a beautiful thing to do in and of itself. It's just a, a beautiful expression for me to, to sit down, to pay attention, to inquire. So it is not so much directed towards something, The elements. So sometimes, you know, um, I remember what a teacher of, my, of, of, of myself said, you know, you continue doing it for the sheer beauty of it, not because we have to do it and work on ourselves. It's an element, but just also to connect more and more for myself, really important. There is a, for me, there is a beauty in it. There is a nobility, there is an integrity which gets in, in expressed in our willingness to sit down, find a place where we can actually really honestly look at reality. So, yes, I think I would still spend time on intensive practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to ask something? <laughs> Oh. I might try try this one. We'll see how it goes. It says, if that which is, is not, and therefore the not is, what is, is, <laughs> and what is not, and what knows is and is not. Sorry, what knows is and not. Sorry, I lost you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this certainly took me back when I, I saw this to um, my studies of uh, philosophy. So this is certainly something I think I shall answer by a little bit of a detour. Um, and I found when I was uh, studying a lot of philosophy, I really loved it, I enjoyed it. It was really lovely to think things through. Um, but I actually noticed at one time that my shoulders were getting very tight, my, my kind of neck was getting tight. Um, and it was actually that experience that made me want to uh, explore something a bit different. And I just had this intuition that maybe yoga could help. And so I explored a yoga class and really loved the Shavasana posture. If you know yoga, there was always my favorite one, the relaxation at the end. Um, and just found it was really um, a kind of different way to approach some of the, the questions that perhaps I'd been exploring in, in philosophy. Um, and so although I, I, I love philosophy and I teach philosophy, there's something for me about when these kind of questions arise like that um, of really just just not not kind of trying to work it out. <laughs> Just not, not trying to work it out. It's like the, the mind kind of gives up. Um, and those kind of questions, again, I think I mentioned uh, Zen practice a bit uh, the other day. Uh, in my understanding, that's how they would be used in Zen. These kind of questions are used almost to, to get to the point where the mind just, just stops trying to work it out. Yeah? And stops trying to kind of fix and settle on a particular um, answer. Um, and that question, let me just to, to mention a little bit, what knows is and not, um, is in many ways so uh, fruitful as a question to, to live with. 
it sends us back to our experience. It invites a sense of curiosity and a sense of openness to our experience. Um, and there's something about the, the sense of needing to, or trying to name something, um, that I, is almost like trying to fix it, close it down, settle it, that's it, I've got it, that feeling. Whereas the question itself is just something that opens, opens the heart to that question. Yeah. And just to be, having said uh, that about kind of putting aside philosophical questions, just to be a little bit philosophical, uh, a couple of things about that. One is that there's something I came across the other day called the nominal fallacy. It's quite interesting. And the nominal fallacy is the idea that if you give a name to something, you've somehow explained it. Um, and I just kind of wonder if that can sometimes be around. So I think the example they gave was, you know, why did she pass the test? She passed the test because she was intelligent. You know, how do you know she's intelligent? Because she passed the test. <laughs> you know. So the word intelligence looks like it's explaining something, but isn't really. There's a kind of... So for me too, the sense of what knows, people sometimes might, might offer various kind of names for that. But the Buddha was very careful not to. In the sense of just saying, you know, not self, inviting us back to, to a place of not wanting to, to pin it down. Okay. I mean, I get. Um, I'm not sure if I understand the question. <laughs> I can share a response. Um, what it seems what it seems to me that there is a very understandable human wish to know it's either is or it's not actually yesterday i didn't say any of these things i didn't say anyway it doesn't matter what i said yesterday there is this very human understandable need to say either it is or it's not one way actually, not so much in the in the Theravadan tradition, to actually describe the middle way, so the Buddhist teachings are described as a middle way, is that one doesn't land on the extremes of either it exists or not exists. So the middle way is actually finding one's ways without landing on these extremes. It's a koan for you. And when I hear it, there's a lot of energy actually coming up. You know, when we actually really, okay, if we don't land either on the statement, it does exist or it does not exist. <clears throat> How important is it to still with to be sit still without moving your body parts. Still body, still mind. I mean, there, there is a correlation, absolutely. There is a correlation of, of still body and stilling the mind. And I think also like there is a real beauty in having this intention to sit still, finding one's, finding one's, um, what is the word? I can't think of the English word. You know, a teacher of mine, again, many, many years, used the analogy, finding the still point. Finding to the still point. It's like the still point in the eye of a, of a tornado. And from this still point, look at experience. And, and, and finding this still point is really, really supported. It's somehow evoked by taking one's posture and having the intention to sit still, open, alert, upright. Again, again, as I said just before, like I find it sometimes really helpful to really, you know, and it's a word which rings for, for me, and it might not work for you at all, but it rings for me, you know, really having the sense of the, of the nobility, of the uprightness. Here I stand, and I, you know, I'm ready to meet whatever arises. 
And with this sitting still, of course, very easily we can become quite, um, quite rigid and flexible in it. You know, here I sit still. But this is what it's not about because we actually find that there is a stillness which is extremely responsive, which is extremely receptive. And it is fine, just if this lingers, it is fine to move at times. (laughs) It's not that you have to sit completely still. But actually, with the stilling of our body, we support the stilling of our mind, and we support our ability to be steady, more and more to be steady in the face of whatever arises. So one can say on one level, it's like a symbol, you know, it's a symbol stands for something. This one there, we initially thought it says, please could you say more about Vedana with eggs? <laughs> and, then, and then we realized, please could you say more about Vedana with examples, you know, the EG. So, so you're free from it's the... Easter. <laughs> free from the eggs. So as we've been exploring, Vedana is this, this sense of uh, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And that then can relate to um, all of the different things that can arise in our experience. So they can be sounds have that quality, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Thoughts, um, smells, feelings in the body, um, uh, sounds. All of these things have these quality, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So... um, all kinds of examples could be there, really. So um, just to think, mate, perhaps if you were to pass the kitchen uh, just before lunch, it's uh, quite likely there'll be pleasant Vedana there. Yeah? So there's a nice smell, and there's that pleasantness. Um, and what we're exploring is how, from that basic sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, so much is, is built. So in that situation, it might be, oh, fantastic, it's going to be nice curry today and I'm really looking forward to that and that'll be delicious and yeah, how long to go now? Oh, only another hour. And then you're sort of looking forward to that. Um, or perhaps it's uh, a smell that you don't like so much. It's something that could even um, you know, trigger all sorts of memories. It might be a smell that reminded you of something that you were forced to eat as a child and then you're back in memories around that um, and uh, you know, whole family dramas being relived. And it's just interesting to notice, to trace it back to a sense of it's something unpleasant. Yeah. So as we, we work with this mindfulness of Vedana, it's about, um, in many ways, just kind of catching, catching it earlier, catching this sense of how a personal world is built earlier. Yeah. There's contact. Independence on contact arises, this Vedana. And then if we're, we're not so mindful in, in response to Vedana, then there's the craving and aversion, the grasping, the clinging, the becoming, the whole thing gets built. But just simply saying, just staying with that, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, you know, can really... Uh, yeah, sort of uh, take away the... This is uh, um, upadana, is one of the words that's used. But is it like take away the fuel for the fire? You know, taking away the fuel for the fire that can, can be alive. Yeah. I okay. think, so, I mean, there's so much more to say about Vedana, but I think we could leave it there. Okay. Thank you. Um, 
it's a little bit, it's a little, I feel a little bit of anxiety arising in me when I go inside mm-hmm. this bowl. You know, I just, just realize, it's like, yeah. I hope this is not too. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, re- I, I might uh, need again help reading. Sometimes I go into a deep, relaxed state. I still. Oh, God, you have to read it for me. Sorry, it's my failing eyesight, so... Sometimes I go into a deep, relaxed state. I still have the breath, but cannot feel any part touching ground. Is this okay, or do I need to move to get my sense of ground back? It's an interesting question, so probably if you would see me in a one-to-one, I would ask you a little bit back more what you're actually experiencing. With with the calming down, with the uh, so I'm just just responding for what I think might be a, a helpful response, um, and without having a lot of information. So with with the calming down, with the calming practices. Now I completely lost my sentence. Our, 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 our awareness gets more and more sensitized. It gets more and more <laughs> subtle. And it's a very common experience that with increased calming, actually the solidity of the body is fading. So there might be, instead of a sense of of contact points, of I'm sitting on the cushion, there might be more a sense of a field of subtle sensations, of subtle energy patterns. And it's really hard then to say even where my body ends (coughs) and where the outside starts, where this concept on some level of the egg, egg, of the leg ends, and the hip starts. So what you might experience is not so much an uncroundedness, but with the letting go, with the relaxation, with the calming, we get more sensitive and we see that on some level what we perceive as our body with its boundaries, hands, arms, it's just a concept, and we can experience it very differently. The calming can go so far, and again, it's not an out-of-body experience. This is not what I'm speaking about, or a sense of uncroundedness, that any sense of body fades away. It's just a field of energy. might be just like a flux of very, very subtle sensations. So you don't need to shift. You don't need to do anything. This is just like um, what, what can reveal itself, like a different, a different direct experience <coughs> of something which we experience most of the time in a certain way and with refined refined attention with sensitivity something else can show itself really as you were speaking as well it reminds me uh, people sometimes talk about being with the breath and the breath becoming more and more subtle and then seeming to, to disappear um, and then it's in the same the same sense that as experience becomes more subtle, like that to yeah to to sort of go with that process rather than feeling that we need to get back to something more gross by you know moving the posture or taking a really deep breath or something. But actually, that subtlety is something we can we can go with. And as actually one important point I just want to add, and it might not make sense. Actually, what it shows. In calming, we are letting go, we are letting go, we are letting go, we are relaxing, we are letting go. We actually, <coughs> when 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 Jake said, we actually get more and more subtle and we can actually see that we actually construct less. We construct less on some level. 
I don't know if it makes sense. So is it? We can actually feel that this perceived solidity of the body is not the whole truth. It's your turn. (laughs) (coughs) So I'm reminding myself why I practice and why the practice is so important to me. To be free from suffering and the root causes of suffering comes to mind so that all beings may be free from suffering. Can you remind me of this link between moment to moment awareness, satipatthana and freedom from suffering? Thank you. So, I think it's very, very helpful to to keep coming back to that question um, of why we practice and to be reminded as this this question does so um, clearly and so beautifully this sense of um, yeah, just a very clear intention, very clear intention. Where is there struggle, difficulty? Where is there? Suffering. How can that be released, uh, you know, on a personal level and more widely? And to really come back to that is is very helpful. And I think I'm not quite sure if this is where the question is coming from, but there can be a sense that the more when we're walking up and down, or when we're kind of sitting with a painful knee, um, we can begin to think, well, what's the relationship between this that we're doing? Just keep coming back to the breath, or keep coming back to the foot on the ground, what's this got to do with this deeper question? And maybe uh, at times it might feel like some of the exercises uh, or some of the methods at least feel a little bit divorced from that, you know, as if I'm kind of just doing the thing more mechanically. And so I guess really just in, in a way as the question is doing, to to let that intention inform our practice, to let that intention inform our practice. So when we're, we're, you know, again, doing that very simple exercise, you know, with the breath, the attention wanders, coming back, with the the breath, the attention wanders, coming back, that actually what we're doing in that is, as Kirsten's been saying, we're cultivating qualities that are really uh, support this sense of, of the end of suffering, cultivating patience, cultivating kindness, and a sense of letting go. Yeah? Letting go. We're strengthening the ability to say, you know, not now, to all of the things that might pull us into different directions, the different kind of obsessions that can be around. We're learning to release their hold on us. Yeah, a sense that there may be more in this question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this. So I'm passing it to you. <laughs> in in the Satipatthana Sutta, the the, the, the Buddha, Buddha, as I as I, as I think I mentioned today, um, defines four four areas, it's not the right word, four what's called four foundations of mindfulness. Body, which is press, sensations of the body. Um, Vedana, what we, what we spoke um, today about. The whole world of mental concepts, of, of, of thoughts, of, of memories, of emotions, of mind states. And then of all phenomena and of the Dharma, of the, of, of the teaching. So all these four areas actually cover whatever constitutes our experience. There's nothing left out. So we are asked to pay close attention to see clearly with a tool of mindfulness, and it is a tool, where we get stuck where we suffer. So one way to actually um, 
puts the link together. We are cultivating the ability to look closer, deeper and deeper. And a very, very, very important aspect of mindfulness is investigation. We need to understand more and more what do I do in this moment that will bring <coughs> suffering, that brings forth suffering. What is it that releases suffering? To see it again and again and again, so much more can. So, and there's a direct link. So, rather having a concept of um, yes, of course, we wanna, we wanna, we wanna, we wanna um, um, understand. Um, I started it wrong. So we actually, we, we really know then the root causes of suffering. We know them. We know them. We understand them. We developed ways of going a different way. We develop flexibility in our responses. So I think they're actually really, really closely, closely related mindfulness and, and the ending of suffering. It's like we, we have to understand it, how it happens here. And again, I think a lot more can be said about it. And on one level, this question, this is something we spoke in so many ways about throughout the whole retreat. Um, but great question, really great. Mm. Thank you. Is it my turn? <clears throat> How is the daily schedule decided by teacher or is there a Gaia house format? Why is there usually very little time for question and discussions? Um, there is a Gaia house format and if Jake and I want to change it, we can change it. It works. We changed it slightly because we thought this might work better. With a, so this is just like in terms of the schedule, you know, like this this uh, this alternation of sitting, walking, sitting, walking. It just makes sense. It makes sense to me. Works for me. And I think when we discussed the schedule, how we changed it, it was very much based on our experience rather than this is how you do it. So what is helpful? What did we observe? You know, what could we actually change and so forth? So we can make changes to the Gaia House format. Why is there usually little time for questions and discussion? I think one answer is the danger of question and discussions, and it's beautiful to inquire, is but of questions and discussions is that we get very, very heady with it. It's a potential danger. And I think another quick answer to this is on one level, is like we are actually setting up the condition in Gaia houses that you can find your own questions. And questions we find for ourselves, they actually have a much bigger impact than, an act, than a question asked and then you hear an answer. It's like, yeah, I see it. Wow, now I see it. So not, not to dismiss the beauty, the the richness of having questions and discussions around, around Dharma, around our exploration, and really if you want to do this, do so, can be so rich, but also giving time to actually sit down, look for yourself. A lot of the answers won't be found by the thinking mind. And I think this is just a little bit of danger with questions and discussions. So nothing wrong with it, but in this in this format, it's yeah, it's not so it's not so um, encouraged really. Mm. Anything? Yeah. Just to, for me, this brought up a sense of how all of the different things that we can do. Um, to learn, really, different things in different mm. situations. And certainly, as a, when I, I do my college teaching, we have all kinds of different methods. And, uh, I mean, I just, I guess, in, in all our lives, really, the, the whole variety of things, you know, I've learned so much from reading books, I learn from kind of listening to talks, I learn from, uh, 
you know, I don't know, watching watching TV, watching uh, films and things. And there's so many different ways that we can we can learn. And and certainly discussion is is very much part of that. And I, I've learned a lot from from doing that. But I I sort of feel too like coming into to this particular tradition and this way of practicing, um, I feel quite a strong sense of wanting to to honour a quite a traditional way of doing things. That even if it at times feels a little bit um, countercultural, you know, because we could think, well, wouldn't it be so much better if during the Dharma talk there was a big PowerPoint behind, <laughs> and so we had some visual aids, and you know, maybe we could give you the some notes and you could start filling in the notes behind it and then we could have a little quiz at the end to see what you, <laughs> you remembered and things like that. Um, and it, but there's something, and also interestingly, again, there's, there's, uh, just to, to mention it a bit, a form I, I'm interesting to make quite conscious is, you know, the two of us are here looking this way and you're all looking that way. And in many of the other areas of my life where I might teach, there's, we might um, have a kind of different sort of format. You know, you might be in a circle or something that seems a bit of a different way of setting things up. So there is a particular thing that this, this form is bringing. And I can only say for myself that I've just found it so helpful. So helpful. Um, and as Kirsten is saying, well, it, it does the silence and the, you know, just this method. I mean... It just opens us up to something different. So like our capacity to listen. You know, that's sort of one argument for not having the, the PowerPoints and everything else. Because it's like, and I, and I can certainly can see this in my college work, it's the fact where people say, well, you know, nobody can listen now for more than 30 seconds. So we need to keep changing things. But you might have the view, yeah, but if we, if we did it like that, then we're strengthening that ability to listen to it. And, and it's a different, a different kind of learning, different kind of learning. And I really feel there's something in this form that really suits what this learning's about. Yeah. Good oh, it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now this one. Shall I pick another one? This is the one that. <laughs> So, I, so what is the heart-mind connection and where does consciousness arise from? In, 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 the, in the language the Buddha spoke in Pali, there's actually only one word to describe heart-mind, which is chitta. So there isn't even like a connection between them, but they're actually really seen as a unified, as a unified concept. So because in Pali and in, in Sanskrit, you find a lot of very, very complex terms like Dharma, like Dukkha, like, like Chitta. You know, and this is also why you find sometimes actually teacher, rather than using the translations, they still refer to Dharma, Dukkha, Chitta, whatever they might be, because you actually cannot translate them with one word in English. It's just not possible. It's too complex. So if we look actually inside, again, if we, if we really get sensitive, it doesn't actually make sense to make a heart-mind Divide. They are, they are completely going together. Whatever arises, what we locate here, influences what we what we sense in the heart. You know, it's a, it's a, actually also a very very new concept. This division. So the 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 way I would answer the first part of the question. <coughs> What is the heart-mind connection? It's not that there is a connection between two separate parts, but actually it is one. It is one, chitta. So we look what, but we look what arises in the chitta. How our chitta is impacted, heart-mind. I think it's actually quite a Western, new Western concept, isn't it? As a philosopher. Really. <laughs> 
and not that old at all, like this division between heart and mind. And what we also start to discover is that even the differentiation between heart, mind, cheetah, and body doesn't make sense. Whatever, whatever impacts on the heart-mind is somehow manifested in the body. If we are aware of it or not, as I said, every thought, every sense, every, everything, every thought, every idea has somewhere a manifestation in the body. So we actually realize more and more the unification of it. The... the, the um, yeah, the separation actually doesn't hold true so much when we look deeper. I hope this answers the first part. And then the second one, where does consciousness arise from? There are many, many different theories about what consciousness is and what it isn't. <clears throat> you know, I think there are even heated, heated discussions within Buddhist tradition, but I'm not entirely sure. And again, with a lot of these terms, we see this tendency that we want to like suss it out, this is what it is. This is what it is. Now we know what consciousness is. So again, it's actually a great question. Where does consciousness arise from? It's a great question. It's like, who knows? like an open-ended question. You know, and very often we come up with, we, we have already certain um, preconceptions, so there is this vast consciousness, there is universal consciousness, or whatever, but actually really, really being open around it. Consciousness, though, again, this is one way of seeing it. It's one way of seeing it to take a deep breath. Now we go a little bit into the theory. <clears throat> In the teaching, it is said that there are, there, are the five, there are five building blocks, they are called five piles, out of which we create a sense of self. And I mentioned them very shortly, very superficially, very crudely yesterday. The five aggregates, pile skandhas, are body, vedana, here it is again, sankhara, isn't it? Mental formations, thoughts, memory, concepts, perception. Perception is our, it's when perception is when we, we know a thing, you know, when we, we, we see a form and we know it's a car. When we make sense out of our experience, so this is a very crude, when we make sense out of our experience, and the fifth one is consciousness. So the Buddha said, when we look closely, we can't locate a self in any one of these five heaps, skandhas. And this is really theoretical now, but I just want to actually mention it. We can't, we can't find the unchanging self. So someone who might come from now the tradition and say, but consciousness, consciousness is all-pervading, he actually has a slightly different definition of consciousness. His definition of consciousness is that consciousness co-arises in any moment something is known. There needs to be always an object of consciousness. Does it make sense? So it's not that there is consciousness around and then something arises in consciousness, but he says consciousness is a knowing, the knowing of experience, and the knowing can only arise when there is experience. Does it make sense? It's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very um, unusual way to think about it. So answering, and probably now you think, oh, I wish I'd never asked this question. <laughs> and, and so the answer is consciousness arises in the moment there is experience, there is something known by consciousness. So this might sound horribly 
theoretically, horribly analytically, but actually when we practice with this, when we look deeper, there is a huge potential for freedom in this understanding. So I really want to emphasize, might like, what does this have to do with my life? You know, but actually, just to be open, there is actually this is a very, very profound teaching, and 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 I didn't do it justice, but just to answer the question. <laughs> So we run out of time. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your questions. I hope you are not overwhelmed. I hope they were helpful. And just maybe just sense into, into your body a little bit. And there might be a lot of mental activity. Just really connecting with your body. Letting what you heard sink in. And, and maybe rather than seeing any of whatever Jake and I shared with you tonight as the answer, I would really wish that the responses we gave actually, some of, you know, some of them at least, gave you energy, interest in further exploration. This is really what I would love from this to come out rather than now they know really seeing what what actually touched you, what is something which caught your interest, what would you explore more, what would you find out more about. Maybe just sense a little bit if there's something arising. And it can be really helpful for our practice to take, as Jake again said, two, week, uh, two days, two weeks ago, two evenings ago, taking the interest as our lead. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.